I'm Matt Keeley, and you're listening to The World in a Grain of Sand, where we take a deep dive into biotech S1s, talk about what's cool, what's unusual, and what we can learn to better construct and support our own portfolio. Today, we'll be reviewing Santa Biotechnology. Incredibly interesting across multiple dimensions, one of which is the fact that it was the largest biotech IPO in 2021, a year of large biotech IPOs, specifically raised just south of $600 million with a valuation that got up to $6 billion. I'm here with Phil Grayeski today. Phil, the one-liner here I think could be a universal cell engineering platform, but I don't know what that means. I don't know how you think of it and would love to know kind of what does sauna do? Yeah. What sauna is trying to do here is actually solve a manufacturing problem, which might seem counterintuitive based on how they're positioning themselves. And so the manufacturing problem that they're trying to solve is the challenge with autologous CAR T cell manufacturing. So before you can really understand Sana, because the CAR T aspect is quite critical to the analysis of the whole company, autologous CAR T cells are these modified T cells that we've generated to basically cure a lot of pediatric cancers, pediatric blood cancers specifically. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we find these patients that have pediatric cancer. We take their T cells out of their body. We genetically modify those T cells to express something called the chimeric antigen receptor. So this is this modified, it's almost like a supercharged receptor mm -hmm. that targets a specific marker on the forms of cancer it's going after in the blood. So the first approved cancers were all targeting a receptor called CD19. So CD19 is something that's expressed on all B cells that have become tumorogenic. And so you then actually take that modified T cell, put them back in patients, and that CAR T platform actually basically wipes out a patient's B cells and in, in fact actually cures that cancer. And so this is the main problem in pediatric ALL. And we're actually coming on the 10th year anniversary in pediatric ALL where the first patient was treated with these autologous CAR T cell technology and they're still cured and alive. And so we've been celebrating that. And so it's, it's been a very groundbreaking technology. That's what the first products from Novartis and GSK with Chimera and Yescarta are doing. And these actually came from Juno and Kite. I can't remember who connected with mm -hmm. who there, but Juno is relevant for Sana later. And so now, you know, the problem with that autologous CAR T cell platform, it's, it's pretty complex from a manufacturing perspective. You just step back, right? You're having to have patients who are really sick, get a blood draw from them, isolate their T cells, then genetically modify them, make sure they're safe and appropriately modified before you put them back in a patient. And Phil, remind me, how much time are we talking between extraction and kind of reinsertion, if you will? It's on the order of one to two weeks, Okay. from what I recall, as, as the fastest way to potentially do this. Although that might seem like a short time frame, there, it's a very expensive patients. process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's expensive. It's labor intensive. And then the other thing to note about these CAR T cells is they're very aggressive. Mm. Like this is a treatment that has caused in some patients a side effect called cytokine storm. Mm -hmm. So when we deliver these back into patients, it causes your immune system to go haywire because it has a supercharged T cell in it now that's killing our own cells in our body. And we release a bunch of these things called cytokines that tell the immune system go like to panic. Yep. And so it's a toxicity that can cause a lot of concerns in patients, but the benefit to have a functional cure here is immense. Mm -hmm. And so that's why uh, we treat patients with this technology. So the way San is approaching this problem is twofold. They have an in vivo platform called fusosomes yep. to basically deliver into the patient 
a delivery vehicle that actually tells T cells within the human body to express the right CAR T receptor. They have an ex vivo technology where they're actually taking cell lines off the shelf and modifying them in such a way to express the CAR T cell receptor and making them look normal to our human immune system. And so to dive in a little bit more on those technologies, the Fusisome platform, the in vivo technology, what they're doing is they're actually creating this delivery vehicle that's a hybrid between a virus and a human cell. And this hybrid virus with this human cell lipid bilayer actually expresses a viral protein called, in this case, sauna-tested VSVG, which allows it to directly fuse to a membrane. So in the world of delivery, most components go through this endocytosis pathway where you actually have to escape once you get taken up by a cell. A fusogen allows you to directly fuse to a membrane and release everything into the main compartment of a cell. And so that adds a really nice delivery advantage, which makes sauna quite interesting. The other side of the platform, the ex vivo side with the hypoimmune cell, what they're trying to do there is if we have an off-the-shelf technology, we don't have to worry about taking a patient's T cells, genetically modifying them. We have something ready to go that we can just deliver to a patient right away. But what you now have to do is basically take off all these components to make the immune cell not look foreign to the human body. You have to basically tell it, hey, I'm you, and please don't eat me. And Phil, is that going to immunogenicity or not? It, a little bit, yeah. In our immune cells, we express these receptors called MHC receptors. And the same way you kind of have to be a matching donor for bone marrow, mm -hmm. you have to be a matching donor for immune cell engraftment. And so you have to make sure your MHC receptors match. And so instead of actually expressing an MHC receptor, what they're doing with these hypoimmune cells is just taking all those receptors out Got and it. knocking them all out. And then we're also inducing three other molecules, CD47, PD1, HLAG. I don't think they're important for the audience, but you should go look them up if you're interested on what they do. We're inducing these other components that basically tell the immune system, hey, don't eat me. And, and it also protects them from autoimmunity and rejection. And so they've done a lot of modifications to the immune cells to make them active. And so that's like the real two platforms. It's the fusosomes in the in vivo space and the hypoimmune cells in the ex vivo space that are going to try to deliver a strategy to get around autologous CAR T cell manufacturing with in vivo delivery of a CAR T cell technology or an allergenic CAR T cell technology. And so the data to date that SANA has on this is on the fusogen side of the business, they were able to deliver a fusosome that expressed a CD19 CAR construct that could actually eradicate a patient xenograft in mice that was expressing CD19. Yep. And that showed efficacy. And they were also able to show their fusogen technology could deliver these vehicles to the liver and express a gene reporter construct showing that they could get there, which yep. is interesting. Yeah, I agree it's interesting. I don't know how interesting given you know, when this is ultimately going to be this, this fusosome, fusosome technology is ultimately going to compete, I think, with AAVs and LNPs, they don't struggle to get to the liver. Yeah, right, everything Phil? traffics to the liver. So largely that data set, it's interesting to see that they were able to do it with the fusosome, but not interesting from a commercial perspective. And then second component, the hypoimmune cells, what they have been able to show to date is that they were able to take one of these hypoimmune cells and actually make it express a CAR receptor against CD19 that could eradicate B cells in mice, which express that CD19 receptor. 
And so that showed efficacy in a mouse model. But what they also did was they, they showed these hypoimmune cells as an iPSC, which an iPSC is an induced pluripotent stem cell. They were able to show these iPSCs persisted in monkeys. Now, why I make that distinction about what cell type they were is because their hypoimmune cells are going to be responsible to differentiate into a bunch of different cell types mm -hmm. to be able to address the therapeutic programs they're targeting. So they're going, for example, if you just look at their pipeline, mm -hmm. they need to differentiate into a T cell in order to eradicate B cells in a CAR T setting. They need to differentiate, these iPSCs need to differentiate into a, a pancreatic beta cells to treat diabetes, or they need to differentiate into heart cells to treat cardiovascular disease that they're targeting. So all they've really shown was this early form of this cell persists in monkeys. They haven't shown these differentiated forms persist in monkeys, which I think is key nuance. Just to sum that up, there's an in vivo program. That's the fusosome program. And then there's the ex vivo program. That's the hypoimmune cells. Is that right, Phil? Yes. Yeah, the hypoimmune cells are, it's an off-the-shelf therapy and it's ex vivo, whereas yeah. the fusosomes is turning your body into the bioreactor. Right. And so the, the ex vivo platform, I think for, for those listeners who have following along for, for months, not too dissimilar from what sensory therapeutics would go after. So for some context, that would be a very similar therapeutic and, and frankly, comes from a similar spot where they're trying to create off-the-shelf CAR-T therapies. So with that background, Mac, I'd love to hear your high-level take on the bear versus bull case of sauna. Before we jump into the bear and bull case, real quickly, I think it's worth mentioning the timeline this all came together because it frankly informs the bull and the bear case, right? So this company was incorporated in the summer of 2018, and this S1 filing was filed in January of 2021. So you have a quick turnaround, two and a half years. I don't think we should make too many inferences, but the immediate inference is unless they've in-licensed assets, this is probably going to be a preclinical company. And as you could guess, it is preclinical. So let's start with the bear case, right? So why wouldn't you want to invest in sauna at the IPO? I think there's a, a couple reasons. One, this is a preclinical company valued at $6 billion. So it's in some ways not that different than a lot of Series A companies we look at from an asset development perspective. Additionally, it's not a Series A company when you look at its burn, right? So this is a company that when they were filing their S1 was burning about $200 million a year on R&D. Keep in mind, that's R&D. They didn't get into breaking down what percentage of that R&D is actually developing the underlying assets, but you know, healthy burn rate. Also, Phil, you identified this. The existing data set is, is light, right? So we have some NHP, I, they would call it safety data. I don't know that it gets all the way there. All, all we're seeing is that those B cells were flushed out. That's not a lot, right? And some mice data. Anyway, I think that is the bear case is that this is just really expensive preclinical assets that you're buying. It gets a lot more exciting when you think about the bull case. And, and the bull case here, I think, can be made because they're going after, I think, the two most exciting therapy modalities of the last at least decade and, and probably more. Gene and cell therapy, they have a, a novel delivery mechanism to compete with existing gene and cell therapies. That's that fusosome that, that Phil detailed. That's really exciting. I mean, the promise here is to be able to deliver any payload to any cell in the body. And why is that exciting? Because this is a team that's done it, right? This is the Juno Therapeutics team. So Steve Haar, Dr. Steve Haar was the CFO, chief strategy officer at Juno. 
he essentially has got the team back together, hired a number of his executives. He's elevated himself to CEO. Uh, as a reminder, Geno Therapeutics was a cell therapy company out of Seattle, sold to Celgene for nine billion. Celgene was ultimately sold to BMS for $74 billion. Speculated the, the value of genotherapeutics within Celgene, but I think largely genotherapeutics is viewed as a success. And other part that you could start to get a little bullish on this company. At the time of IPO, it had almost a billion on the balance sheet, right? That's That gives you a lot of stability as an early stage biotech. Lots of early stage biotechs have less than $10 million on their balance sheet. So big capital advantage here for Sana. And I think, Phil, I'd love your thoughts here. I think KDT is frankly pretty aligned with the thematic thinking around delivery and these these therapeutic modalities. And very specifically, I'm talking about, they say, we believe delivery of a therapeutic payload represents the greatest unmet need and is the core of our strategic focus because delivery is the most critical bottleneck. Phil, is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, right? From, and then that's honestly it, where I where I kind of land on this is I, I'm much more interested in the fusosome potential and the technology there because that's really that holy grail that they're talking about is like delivery is the most critical bottleneck. Now, some might argue, oh, the hypoimmune cell platform could become its own delivery vehicle. And we can, we'll dive in more on the technical side about the risks associated with it. But yeah, I think we're very aligned with across our portfolio around what challenge SAN is going after and why this is such an exciting moonshot um, that they're taking here with with the two platforms that they're developing in yep. parallel. No, that's right. And then, and then the last piece, if the SANA exec team was here listening to our bear case, they'd say, listen, our fusogen technology, it's de-risk. We've seen what the coronavirus can do. Like We understand the underlying biology here. And oh, by the way, this technology won the Nobel Prize back in 2013. This isn't some preclinical platform. You know, quite the contrary. This is an established exec team with a huge balance sheet with a you know, somewhat validated technology going after some of the biggest markets biopharma can possibly address. What I like to drill down, Mac, to kind of start like on the technical side, where I, I see things because it's it's so early, right? There, that's really what you can evaluate, right? It's a preclinical, the entire Absolutely. pipeline is no, preclinical. No, 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 that's right. There is no commercial. I mean, <laughs> they're going after big markets, yeah. right? Like that's the commercial analysis here. Yeah, pretty much. And so the way I look at it, when I think about the fusosome technology, what's smart about what they're going after, about their ability to hit T cells, the way I think about delivery is I break it into two parts. There's biodistribution versus targeting. So for listeners who may not be as familiar with delivery, biodistribution is like where something largely aggregates within the human body in my mind. It's kind of like, are you getting to the right zip code of, of what you need? So are you reaching an organ like the lung? Are you reaching an organ like the liver? Are you uh, a compartment like the plasma? But then the other aspect targeting is you actually need to hit the right cell. Okay, you can be in the zip code, but are you knocking on the right doors in those zip code to meet the right customers at the end of the day. And so that's where you start to need better ways to target specific cell types. And so SANA largely has figured that out because they're using these viral proteins that typically infect our immune cells. You look at HIV, right? That targets specific T cells. There's a lot of, you know, I imagine in the early R&D strategy of SANA, you know, they could select from their host of viral glycoproteins, which cell types they wanted to target within the immune system. So in terms of indication selection, it makes sense for them to go after T cells, which are abundant in the plasma, which is the compartment most 
vesicles will see when you go through a systemic IV injection. And it makes sense that they, they'll probably be able to hit T cells and express a chimeric antigen receptor reliably. But I think some of the limitations now, if I were to take the bear mm -hmm. case on the technology, is when you're going with the fusosome, right? So you might be, you'll be seeing the plasma, but you want to make sure you're not getting cleared out by things the immune system naturally sees. Because a fusosome at the end of the day is partially a viral component. And Phil, just to make sure everyone's following, when you say it's not clearing out cells, are you talking about immunogenicity? here and so are we no not even not even no so our immune system has a bunch of trash collectors mm -hmm. in it like macrophages that often take up certain particles and dispose of them before they even reach their target cell type and so what we want to be able to do is are there fusosomes are we going to be able to reliably hit t cells in the plasma without being cleared by macros like that's one risk now given the data that they show with the mice i think they're uh, that they are reliably able to avoid that and they're getting enough efficacy being seen. So that's why I have more confidence in that fusosome platform. But I do think the other aspect is what they're delivering is important to consider here, yep. right? So they're and, delivering- And when you say that, are we talking, are you more concerned with the actual payload? And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, RNA versus DNA, or are you thinking size? And maybe it's both. I'm not concerned about size. I'm concerned about what they're expressing. So if they do it with an RNA-based modality, that's fine to me. DNA-based modality, that's fine. There's going to be nuances with all of that. But uh, what I get concerned about is they're expressing a chimeric antigen receptor. And so what we've seen as a side effect of some of the autologous CAR T-cell therapies is that there is a, th a tighter therapeutic index than we would like. And what I mean by that is some of these chimeric antigen receptors actually cause things like cytokine storm mm. in patients because you're actually stimulating this really aggressive immune response to be able to eradicate the cancer, which is why they're such a good therapy for your curative potential. But the downside is you might cause some significant toxicity. And so you don't really have good dose control with this modality. You, at least within the autologous CAR T cell space, you know exactly how many CAR T cells you're going to be delivering to a patient. But with a fusosome, there's going to be some variability based on just general different receptor expression levels across patients and what have you. And what's also challenging is in their technology, you can't redose. So coming back to your immunogenicity yep. point, Mac, because it's a partially viral construct, mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to re able to be redosing these elements because your immune system is going to see this viral protein generate an antibody response to these viral proteins that are being expressed by these delivery vehicles and basically clear them out before they ever can get to their target cell the next time. So you got to kind of have a one shot try here to get the right dose in a patient without causing too much toxicity. That's a very hard challenge to figure out, but it's a very compelling one if you're successful, yep. which is why to me, that's the most exciting modality they have going here. I think when you look at their preclinical pipeline, I think they'll be able to reasonably get to things like the liver, um, which they're they're going after, given that pretty much all. I was going to ask Phil, what what can't hit the liver? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so we know, and so going back to that biodistribution analogy, the most common zip code, non like <laughs> yes. non yeah, yeah, like yeah. Uh, the most common zip code any vehicle that we deliver into IV beyond the plasma is going to go hit the liver, and and so these fusosomes will likely be able to get there, but you can get to the liver with LNPs and other delivery technologies. But the real exciting element is that they can reach T cells here with this technology. Uh, and that might be a big enough biodistribution space that's exciting for future treatments if they can figure out how to reliably express a safe car construct in vivo. Yeah. So the in vivo fusosome 
aspect of Sana, right? The the first of the two platforms. We can say initial data looks good, still early, but we we really like the promise. Give me what would be the one sentence summary for the ex vivo side of side of the company. So the one sentence summary on the ex vivo side of the company. I am a bear, okay. I, and that's just that's my opinion. Yep. I would largely underwrite most of that to zero, and the reason being because I I know they've shown IPSC persistence in in HPs, and I know they've shown some functional activity in mice. The problem is is that they're modifying those cells a lot, and they're really having to do a lot to them to make them active. That usually when you alter a cell that much. Actually, let me take a step back. What they have to do with the hypoimmune cells is they're basically creating these induced pluripotent stem cells from most likely fibroblasts or whatever their initial tissue type that they're harvesting is. They basically convert them to these iPSC cells. They create all these knockouts. And then after that, then they have to turn them into the target cell that they want to become. So they have to create iPSC cell into a T cell. If they're going to go after the CAR T cell mm-hmm. space on their pipeline, they're also going after mm-hmm. diabetes. So if they have to make pancreatic beta isolate cells, they're going after cardiac space. So they have to make heart cells. Yeah, no small feet. It's no small feet. Yep. And so the problem that I see is when you disrupt the basic cellular programming so much, the cells don't typically behave how you want. And so I think you have some potential like efficacy risk there. I think you have some potential persistence risk Mm -hmm. there. Like will these cells actually incorporate? Because we know firsthand, I think when you look at a lot of the data around cardiac cell replacement and pancreatic isolate cell replacement, you also have to think about the microenvironment. Like how do you engraft appropriately into those cell types without them just being eradicated? Because that that those target those N cell types are gonna be very different than the IPSCs that they showed were in primates. And so without seeing that functional activity I'm very bearish. And I think the other thing is you've now also created a cell type. Like, let's say if they are successful, mm-hmm. then you've now created a cell type that has no mechanism to control it. The immune se- you've basically, you've <laughs> yeah, basically yeah, yeah, taken yeah. off all these signals that right. the immune system usually uses to clear out something that's bad. And now you've hidden this thing. And so the big risk is there is what if the cell becomes cancer because it went through an induced pluripotent mm-hmm. stem cell state and it's tumorogenic? Or like, let's say this cell gets infected by a virus well, it's very tough to clear a virus when all these yeah, immune and, evasion. And Phil, if, if I'm trying to channel the Sauna Biotech team, is there a response, but this is the nature of CAR-T? Or is that not fair because the level of engineering that Sauna is doing far surpasses the level of engineering and optimization of other groups? It's the latter. Yeah. Because a CAR-T cell, you're taking a patient's T-cells and you're just making them express, which sounds so trivial now to think about, but it was a massive leap in innovation. But it is somewhat where people are commonly making this in academia. You're, you're just adding one gene to right. the problem. No, that's Whereas right. these hypoimmune cells have multiple gene knockouts, multiple gene insertions, mm-hmm. and you're betting that's the right combination in yeah. the secret sauce to make them off-the-shelf treatments. Yeah, I think that's well articulated. So, Phil, with the what I'll call like the substance behind us... Um, I don't think you can talk about sauna without talking about how it all came together, right? Oh, I, yeah. So this is a fun one, and, and this has layers. And we'll start with kind of just the construction of the underlying technology, and then we can talk about players. Although it all kind of goes together. So my immediate reaction when I got through this was, sauna was constructed very intentionally. And what I mean by that is, 
this wasn't kind of like a a scientific discovery by one really intelligent person that then blossoms into different derivative technologies. Quite the contrary. I think this was incredibly intentional from the beginning. And why do I think that? Because keep in mind, this was a company that was incorporated in the summer of 2018. About nine months later, it completes the acquisition of Cobalt Biomedicine. Now, Cobalt was, it's unclear, it looks like 100% owned by flagship, right? So this was a flagship company. Cobalt is the source of the Fusigen technology. So the in vivo aspect of the Sana platform came from Cobalt, came from flagship, right? So they paid $136 million up front, and I assume $500 million in milestones because the, the milestone payments, very interestingly, from my perspective, were driven by the valuation step up that the company received in future financings, given the acceleration we saw in valuation for Sana. I'm assuming that was hit. Don't know it for certain, but it, it seems very likely. And, and even if they didn't get maybe all of the 500 million, certainly got close. Can I ask a question there? Of was course. That, was that full cash or was that part of equity? Yeah, Phil, so great question. So the 136 million was issued in stock. So essentially, what the result was is that this company was seeded by Arch. And Arch provided, Arch and F Prime provided most, if not all, of the capital up front. But since Cobalt was a flagship company, flagship and Arch ended up with similar ownership following the acquisition of Cobalt. Another way of saying this is Flagship got $136 million of stock in this company in exchange for Cobalt. And up to $500 million, and just to, to front run the question, that $500 million is payable in stock or cash. So they, they preserved some, some optionality there. But suffice to say, Cobalt was, was a flagship company. Mm -hmm. I know this happens from time to time, but Phil, it would have been fantastic to be a fly on the wall when the Juno Therapeutics team is in the room with Arch, you know, Bob Nelson's on the board of this company, who's in the room with Flagship, who's got the Cobalt technology. I mean, nobody knows how this all came together. That would be a fascinating wallflower opportunity, I think, to see what deals were made and how this thing all got constructed. Because it, it largely is Arch and Flagship are two firms that have some of the strongest reputations in biotech. And so you can look no farther than Moderna to know flagship's reputation and then Juno with of Arch. It's it's just impressive. Yep. So we acquired the in vivo side of the platform. The ex vivo, these hypoimmune cells that Phil has previously described, those came from Harvard. We just licensed those in, paid $2 million cash, uh, gave Harvard about $9 million in shares, and there were some escalations or some milestones that ended up paying out more to Harvard, up to $175 million. Don't know exactly what was paid, but I, I do think it was probably close to that amount, given that, again, that payment was tied to a step up in valuation that, that we ended up seeing. In addition to Harvard, there were multiple licenses from other academic institutions, UCSF, UCLA, University of uh, Washington at St. Louis all in licensing technologies. It's unclear 
from the S1 if they were complementary, supplementary, exactly the extent of overlap between them. But suffice to say, they really did a land grab around these hypoimmune cells and kind of in-licensed everything they could. I didn't get into specifics on the license for the non-Harvard universities because they were significantly smaller. Almost everything was sub-million dollars. I think the UCSF license may have been a million or two, but really it was the Harvard license and then kind of a handful of, of bolt-ons, if, if that's not pejorative. So really cool construction. And, and what I mean by that is like, this is somebody, you know, the ex-CFO at Juno getting together with Arch, getting together with Flagship and figuring out how do you build, as I said at the top of the, the podcast, a universal cell engineering platform. Well, Mac, you know, as a scientist over here, you can't forget Richard Mulligan. Yes. No, no, no. And, and I regret the oversight. And, and what's Richard Mulligan's so what's his role now? Yeah. So so this was the other brand name attachment to the company. So Richard Mulligan is one of the considered one of the early pioneers of gene and cell therapy. He he did a lot in retroviruses, so really well versed in probably what the fusosome technology is doing and also has done cell therapy editing. He's a Harvard professor, very decorated. And he was folded into the company to run a division called Sana X. And so Sana X and the company is, it's a section that doesn't report to anybody on the board, but you could explain that better uh, no, it than just, I can. Uh, no, 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 I, I don't think that's true at all, but I appreciate it. I, you know, this, according to the S1, this is an independent research organization with an independent research budget. And it's led, as you said, Phil, by Dr. Richard Mulligan, who was the chair of the board prior to taking this role, which I think provides some context as to just how much freedom he would be getting. My experience is, is when people step off being the chairman and take more active roles in those companies, there's generally a lot of deference given to that individual. Yeah. I, and I would just say, like, I, I actually love this independent early R&D approach here to Sana, because I think that will help them stay at edge on preclinical development. I think a lot of companies, when they have these big audacious visions like Sana, tend to get distracted in many ways. And then there's also this issue of they they start to like reduce their preclinical focus to push mm-hmm. assets forward, which there's arguments for and against. But I think what, by preserving Sana X, I think it will always let Sana be much more nimble mm-hmm. as an R&D outfit, even though they, although they have this large cash budget and they have these large pressures to be able to find new delivery technologies and new cell engineering technologies that could be credible. And you do have a guy who's quite accomplished leading the whole effort there. Yep. I have no idea if this is how they thought about it, but when I was reading about Sana X, the Google X comparisons are, are obvious. I think the less obvious comparisons are, is whatever the budget is for Sana X, is that money better spent than essentially acquiring a bunch of different types of early stage technology? Because I think that's what a lot of what we've seen, you know, investing in early stage companies, we've seen pharma has an interest in paying modest amounts for technologies that they think could be adjunctive to their existing technologies. Anyway, I think this is a cool way of keeping your R&D fresh, as you said, Phil. Anyway, We'll see how it goes, of course, but it, it's cool and novel. A couple other things, Phil, before we wrap up here that I think the audience may find interesting. So like a number of other companies we've discussed on this podcast, 
no manufacturing capabilities at the time of IPO. Mm -hmm. I don't really have a strong judgment on whether or not companies should build their own manufacturing, you know, pre or post IPO. I don't think that's the right framework. I do think it's interesting because we have seen a number of private companies invest in manufacturing pre-IPO, but again, more importantly, I think when the cost of capital got to a point where these companies thought now it starts to make sense. When you're a really when you're really early and not very valuable company, raising $80 million to create a manufacturing facility probably doesn't make a lot of sense, nor do I think there are lots of groups that will fund that. But when the cost of capital comes down enough, that's when, you know, whether you're private or public, that's when we've seen companies start investing in their own manufacturing infrastructure. And it's worth noting here, they've earmarked 80 million of the proceeds just to building manufacturing capabilities. And this is just pure speculation, but Arch is the main investor in resilience. Yes. So they, they have some good portfolio synergy there to hopefully solve some of the potential challenges that might come up with SANA. So maybe they did, they felt it wasn't necessary. Yep. No, that's right. And then, you know, Phil, you touched on their work with IPSCs. I can't help but raise, when we did the Century Therapeutics podcast, we spent a fair bit of time talking about their their reliance and partnership with Fujifilm Cellular Dynamic. If you'll recall, they were largely, uh, Fujifilm that is, licensing their cell lines to Century to work on with, within cancer. Here, we've seen a less robust, less intertwined relationship. But it just makes me wonder how many of these cell therapy companies are pulling cell lines from Fujifilm. I mean, we're two for two in our last cell therapy companies. Anyway, frankly, for my own benefit, I think it's really interesting that we may have a very few number of IPC cell line providers across the entire industry. I think it would be interesting to do a little bit of an analysis there. The other thing that also catches my eye about this company is the pipeline. Yep. It's presented as this broad pipeline uh, when you start to think about where, where they're going to really end up commercially. And yes, they have Sana X, and that's always going to keep their edge preclinically. But to have resources deployed, if they really started reaching clinic with a lot of these technologies, you're going to have to have groups in oncology. You're going to have to have groups in metabolic disease. You're going to have to have groups in cardiovascular disease. That's not one team. That's going to address <laughs> no. all of those indications and diseases. Yeah, there's the, and then they also have CNS too. Yeah, just to, just to top it off. So this is clearly a pipeline that I think they're putting a lot of bets out there, and mm-hmm. they're going to see what works. I think they've chosen their clear leads here are in the T cell generating either allergenic CAR T, so off the shelf CAR T with the hypoimmune platform, or in vivo delivered CAR T cell platforms for the fusogens. And I think that's really where you're going to see them start to concentrate in the future. What is interesting is in their S1, they did talk about how they were going to have multiple programs through IND in 2022. And, you know, I know we get to be Monday morning quarterback here, but none of them have yet reached clinic as a result and for phase one trials. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens in 2023. I imagine probably one of these will advance into clinic and it'll probably be one of the two T-cell programs. I'd be a betting man on the Fusosome technology. Yeah. And just to wrap up, and this is in the same line of thought, you know, we get to Monday morning quarterback, but I think the audience, to save the audience, a Google search, Sauna's been subject to the biotech 
free fall. So they're down. It's valued somewhere between $1 and $2 billion today, which down, call it 60% from the top, but not unlike lots of other biotechs. From my end, there's no inference to be drawn other than as biotech has been sold off over the last six to nine months, there has not been an exception made for sauna. And do you know if the lockup period expired for those early investors? Yeah, that should have expired. So this floated, first S1 was filed in January, I believe it actually floated in February. So that should have been kind of summer-ish of last year. Gotcha. Interesting. Well, Phil, thank you so much. Thanks for bringing a level of clarity and detail that that I hope the listeners have appreciated the way I have and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Cool. Thanks, Matt.